0: Hi, everyone. This is Motsi. At the end of 2022, we set a goal for ourselves to hit 1,000 subscribers on YouTube before 2023. And though we weren't able to hit our goal, we did get a huge boost of over 100 subscribers to our channel. Our original plan was to release the patron-exclusive episode, remind me to tell you later, Batibat, as a reward for getting us to 1K. And though you didn't reach our goal, we still wanted to thank everyone who supported us thus far. So, we're releasing this episode for one week only on all platforms. Remind me to tell you later, but the will be available from January 22, 2023, until January 29, 2023. Please make sure to check the content warnings, catch this episode before it's taken down, and enjoy! Happy 2023, happy Lunar New Year, and we'll see you all soon. You are listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul Remind me to tell you later Batibat
1: When we were dating, Ira used to always say that sleep paralysis was as close as you can get to pure, unbridled panic outside of the waking world maybe even worse, because of the powerlessness. The inability to move, to fight, or flee, or even scream. She used to get bouts of sleep paralysis nightmares for days at a time, a few times a year. She likes to joke that they're the reason she has an aversion to a normal sleep cycle. They disappeared altogether when Lolong came to live with her, but before that, Performing cleansing rituals to ward off the nightmares became as much part of our dating lives as alternating who paid for coffee. I didn't mind. Warding magic was one of the first spells I'd learned at that point, and it was pretty much muscle memory to perform it. I was 14 when I first started learning it. At that age, Nana liked to take me along with her on assignments, either to observe her at work or help out where I could. This one job took us all the way to Palawan, a large island region in the western part of the Philippines. Nane's services had been called on to solve the mysterious death of the family patriarch. All rich people have at least one albulario or babaylan on call, so it wasn't unusual for us to be flown out of Luzon for an all-expenses-paid work trip. The Castillos had only been a week into their summer vacation when Edmundo Castillo had begun having nightmares. Bangungot, we like to call them. He had them every night, but his wife, Jean Castillo, had not thought much of them, not even in the final few days when he declared he thought he would die. He died in his sleep on the seventh night. The autopsy couldn't find anything wrong with him. He was apparently perfectly healthy for his age, except for, well, except for the fact that he was dead. That was about all the information we could get from the first few phone calls. The family lived in a lavish, Spanish-style mansion, old enough to have been built in that era, but clearly newly renovated. We were welcomed by a maid, dressed in a housekeeper's uniform. The house had been modernized to fit the trendier styles, but a lot of the character was in the wooden floors and ceilings and accents, that I could tell had been retained from the original Spanish-era structure. We had just stepped into the large foyer when Jing walked in, carrying herself proudly, you must be to the two inns. Welcome, welcome. Yes, Miss Jing. Thank you for having us. I said with practiced formality. I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. Yes, it's a sad time for us, especially the kids. Mrs. Castilia replied. They should be just around. You'll meet them later. But come, let's get to business. Your daughter can stay here in the living room. I'll have the yaya serve her food. Thank you. But my daughter will be helping me with my work. So it's best she listens into our discussion. Mrs. Castillo eyed me warily. She looked like she wanted to argue, but instead nodded and led us to a poolside veranda where a merienda of sandwiches and juice was already laid out on the table. There was a short discussion, conducted really only by Nana and Mrs. Castillo. I was expected to simply listen and observe. I didn't mind really. I was grateful that Nana trusted me enough to insist on involving me. They went over the details you already knew. "'albeit with a little more dramatic flair from Mrs. Castillo. "'Nana would nod sympathetically at the appropriate moments. "'It must have been traumatizing for your husband to die beside you in your sleep.' "'Oh, we don't sleep in the same bed.' "'I see. And you want us to solve the mystery of your husband's death?' "'Yes, and I haven't told anyone this, but my daughter, she... "'She began having nightmares five days ago. "'Her only daughter. "'The youngest of three kids, if I remember correctly. eight years old.' Bangungot were not unusual in itself, but definitely unusual in kids that age. You should have called us earlier, Miss Jing. Nana softly reprimanded. It seems you have a batibat in your home. Nana explained. A batibat is a creature of the forest. When angered, it induces sleep paralysis nightmares into its victims for seven nights before killing them in their sleep. They're common in houses with plenty of wooden structures. Normally... The wood was taken from a tree they used to reside in, and to take revenge on the house's inhabitants for destroying their home. Nana immediately registered the skepticism on Mrs. Castillo's face and cut her off before she could say anything. You called on us for a reason, remember? Mrs. Castillo could not form a response to that. Nana simply nodded and informed her of the procedures you would perform to ward off the batibat. A simple enough process, a talisman in each room of the house, to trap the batibat within the wood it resides in and a cleansing ritual for extra protection. We were shown to our rooms, but despite the travel fatigue, Nana wasted no time in preparing the tools for our ritual. She was practical like that. No nonsense. She already had a good idea of what the cause of Edmundo Castillo's death was, just from the initial phone conversations, so she had everything ready. When Nana asked me to help, I did my best to mask my excitement. Most I did on my Nana's assignments was observe, Though I suspected the hands-on training would become more frequent as I got older. We started in the guest bedroom. I got to place the candles and spread the salt as Nana did everything else. She took out a pocket knife that I'd seen her use regularly for rituals that needed anything sharp. I never ask how she manages to get it past airport security. She used it to nick her hand and daub the slightest bit of blood onto paper talismans, which she stuck to the highest point in the corner of every room. When she was done, I lit each candle as she chanted the same mantra in a loud whisper, and blew them out as soon as she finished. We did the same for every bedroom. We came across more household staff and passed by Mrs. Castillo by the pool. We saw none of the kids, even as we worked on each of their bedrooms. It was a large house. Even with Nana's efficiency, it took us until after sundown to finish. Mrs. Castillo looked surprised when Nana informed her of the finished work especially when Nana insisted that we stay two nights instead of one to make sure it stuck. She probably thought we were trying to scam our way into an extended paid vacation, but one look at my Nana's face seemed to convince her. It was dinner that we finally met the Castillo children. Joshua, much, much older than any of us, who worked for his parents' company, didn't take kindly to our presence. The middle child, Inigo, who was just about my age, didn't pay us any mind. And the youngest, Sophie, was just an absolute sweetheart, I smiled at her as we were introduced, and she smiled back and giggled shyly. The family were all in black to signify their mourning, but it seemed like only the kids' moods matched the clothing. Mrs. Castillo talked animatedly through dinner, chatting about anything and everything that wasn't about the current situation. The only time she wasn't too keen to get into detail was when Nana asked about the nature of her business. Just some trading and manufacturing here and there, she said with a wave of her hand, and quickly changed the subject. Nana and I didn't stay long after the meal. She didn't show it, but I knew she was exhausted. An afternoon full of rituals was definitely starting to catch up with her, and I didn't want to be left alone and awkward at the table. We excused ourselves, and Joshua took the opportunity to leave as well. I understood. I was the same way when Tate died. With Joshua leaving, Mrs. Castillo decided it was time to usher the two other kids to bedtime. Inigo kissed his mom goodnight and left quietly. Sophie made to leave as well, but not before calling out first, Yeah, Lani, can you come with me to sleep? "'One of the maids stepped out of the kitchen. "'She was the same one who welcomed us when we arrived. "'She walked over and smilingly took Sophie's hand in hers "'and jokingly chided that she was too big to be tucked into bed. "'I bade Mrs. good night, and she amicably did the same. "'But as I stepped into the hallway out of the dining area, "'I heard a short, weary sigh behind me. "'We were alone when we sat down for breakfast the next morning. "'Joshua and Inigo were nowhere to be seen.' and Mrs. Castilio preferred to take her morning coffee and cigarette by the veranda. It was Sophie who ended up joining us as we were about halfway through our meal. She looked so tired. More tired than an eight-year-old should ever have to be. Lanny came to her with a ready dish of rice, scrambled egg, and tender juicy hot dogs. A different fare from the toast and marmalade and chicken sausages prepared for us, and the rest of the family. Eat up, Banga. I made your favorite, Lanny said before moving back to the kitchen. It was just as well that Sophie was the one eating with us, since she was the one who Nana wanted to check on anyway. She asked if she had any nightmares last night. Sophie quietly shook her head, but Nana didn't buy it. She asked again, and this time, Sophie replied that she was not allowed to talk about it. Nana gently explained that Mrs. Castillo had told us about her problem and that we were here to help. She just needed to know if our help had worked. Sophie quietly looked at her plate before finally giving a small nod. She had another nightmare yesterday, and it was worse than before. Nane was quiet. I didn't understand. The spell should have worked to trap whatever but haunted this house. Sophie should have had the best sleep she's had in days. I knew for a fact Nane could not have messed up that spell, so something outside of her control must have happened. Nana didn't say anything except to ask Sophie to describe her dream. She was quiet and picked at her food with her spoon. I was about to say something encouraging when she finally started to speak. It began with a small shadow in the corner of her room. She had woken, rather, dreamt that she had woken at one point in the night and knew immediately that she was not alone. The shadow did not move. It did not speak. It didn't so much as twitch. She wanted to scream for help, but she couldn't even open her mouth. Maybe she could run, but she couldn't get herself to sit up or move her legs. Hide under the blanket, then. But not even that was possible. Her entire body was paralyzed the only movement allowed her was the movement of her eyes they darted back and forth between the shadow on her right and window to her left where she could see the leaves of the trees swaying softly in the wind the shadow didn't move but she knew it was coming for her on the second night the shadow was no longer a shadow it was a form indiscernible but more solid than before. And it was bigger. And it had moved. It was closer to her bed than the night before. Sophie wanted to cry, but her eyes stayed dry. Her heart beating so loudly she could hear it beating out of her ears. There was wind again. Gently shaking the trees outside her window. And she focused on the sound it made, like a hushed song in the breeze. On the third night, the thing had come closer, and it had a shape, a man, maybe, or a woman, a child, sitting or crouching on the ground. It was shrouded in shadow, but she knew it had a face, and that it was watching her. She stared at the ceiling, where the whorls of wood seemed to form a smiling face at her. Again, she could not move. The song in the wind grew louder. On the fourth night, it had come closer again. She did nothing but stare at the ceiling, the likeness of the smiling face on the wood staring back at her. The song in the wind did little to comfort her, because while the thing remained unmoving, it was close enough now that she could tell it was breathing. On the fifth night, the shape was in the same spot. It looked the same as before, but sharper around the edges. She learned that even though she could move her eyes, she could not close them. The only option was to look away, and she did so as hard as she could, staring again at the face in the ceiling. There were more voices in the wind. And she distracted herself by trying to make out the words to their song, but she could only hear muffled whispers. She dared to look back, and when she did, the head of the thing had moved, ever so slightly, and a mouth opened in a smile against the darkness of its face, shining white teeth. It was giddy for something and she didn't know what. To her horror, something like a hand, or what would be its hand, slid forward against the floor. And then the other hand did the same. Sliding farther, the shape was crawling toward her on all fours. Slowly, so aggravatingly slow, it was halfway between the corner of her room and her bed, and it was narrowing the distance between them. Inch by torturous inch. Move. Just move, please. She thought to herself. If she could just move, even a finger, even a toe, she knew she could escape. But she couldn't. The face in the ceiling just remained smiling at her. On the sixth night, the shape had gone. She stared at the spot it had been. It was empty, but she was still afraid. The song in the wind was louder. She turned her eyes toward the window. And There it was, beside her bed on the left, its face close to hers. Its grin was wider. And now that it was closer, she saw that where its eyes should have been were deep pits of darkness. When it saw that she was looking at it, it moved its face closer to her, as slow as before. And she could swear she could feel its breath on her face. She woke up crying. Nana and I were both quiet as she told her story. Sophie was calm, but morose when she finished. When we didn't say anything, she continued eating her food listlessly. Then I went to talk to Mrs. Castillo to try to gain more information that could help us. I was sent to talk to the children and household staff and ask if any of them had any similar experiences. I found Inigo first, playing video games in the entertainment room. Inigo seemed cooperable enough and was about to answer my queries when Joshua interrupted a threatening presence at the door when he asked me to leave. Nana and I were just taking advantage of their mom's delusions, he told me. If we had any respect for their grieving family at all, we should just leave them alone. I didn't want to argue with the man, so I complied. He'd wish soon enough that he talked to me instead, when Nana eventually dealt with him. As I closed the door behind me, I turned to see Sophie standing a little ways away, obviously eavesdropping. She looked guilty, so I smiled at her and told her it was okay. I like to listen in too when older kids were leaving me out when they play, I told her. That made her smile a bit. I went over and crouched in front of her so I could look her in the eye. We're not going to let anything happen to you, okay? I said, as reassuring as I could. Your Kui is just looking out for you and your mom and he's trying to deal with your dad's death as best as he can. But believe me when I say that we're really here to help and Nana is the best person for this job. She looked down at her feet. Something was obviously weighing on her mind. "'I'm going to die,' she said it so quietly I almost didn't hear her. I schooled my face into calm, took her hand and reassured her again that nothing would happen to her. She shook her head. She didn't believe me. She looked like she was going to cry. I asked her if she'd told anyone else. She shook her head and said her mom didn't allow her to talk about any of her dreams with anyone. Not even her brother's. I thought for a moment what to do, and unclasped the Anting Antinga necklace I had on me. A gift from my mom. I had had it with me for as long as I could remember. Sophie looked at me curiously as I reached around to clasp it around her neck. This will protect you, I told her. Hold on to it for me, until Nana and I leave. It's very powerful, so as long as you take care of it, it'll take care of you too. She turned the old pendant over and over in her hand, her eyes wide. The necklace was big around her neck, so it was well hidden when she tucked it beneath the collar of her shirt. She gave me the most genuine smile I'd seen on her yet, and eagerly nodded. It turned out Nana had already talked to the household staff by the time I found her. She works fast like that. She got nothing out of Mrs. Castillo that could help her, "'so her next course of action was to go out into town "'in hopes of learning more from the locals. "'She told me to keep watch over Sophie. "'In case I don't come back before dinner, don't let her sleep,' "'she said as she left. "'If we could keep her from having her seventh bangungot, "'we could delay the Batibat's death curse. "'Sophie was out of the pool with her brothers. "'I thought it would be cool out because of the breeze "'I could hear from indoors, "'but I guess the summer midday sun was too hot to beat.' I situated myself on a beach chair under the shade and just did some reading while I watched the Castillo kids. One of the maids came out to give me some cold juice. She whispered something as I thanked her. "'Sorry, Ana I said. She looked at me confused and said she didn't say anything. I told her never mind and shrugged it off. Merienda time rolled around by the time the kids decided they were done with the pool. It must have been getting cold anyway because the wind was getting stronger. I wondered if a storm was on the way. I was still a little intimidated by Joshua, so instead of joining them for merienda, I thought I would hang out in the kitchen and maybe talk to the staff there. As is normal for rich Filipino households, there were two kitchens. The grander, prettier one, used maybe once or twice a week, and then an auxiliary one at the back where the staff busied themselves and where most of the actual cooking happened. I found Lanny there preparing for tonight's dinner. The maid was also there shortly before hurriedly walking out with a tray of sandwiches and juices. Lani didn't seem to mind that I was hanging around. She let me eat some sandwiches that she made extra, but for the most part didn't talk much, which I didn't mind, as she was too busy with another grand meal plan for dinner. The sound of the wind was stronger from in here, and I wondered why no one else seemed bothered by it. Then again, in a house like this, I suppose nobody had to worry about floods, or leaks, or their furniture flying off. But I did worry about a storm affecting our flight home, and I commented as much. Lani turned to me then, her brows knitted in confusion. Storm? I know storm, but the weather's been fine, ma'am. I mentioned the wind, and she only looked more confused. She pointed out the window. It was mostly only a view of a wall surrounding the house, but beyond it, you could see the tops of mango trees peeking out. They were completely still. I couldn't really form an explanation, so I just said sorry. Probably just tired but the sound of rushing wind was still surging loudly in my ears. I looked around to see what could be causing it. A broken air conditioning unit? A really loud electric fan? I could see nothing, but as I paid more attention to the wind sound, it was then that I noticed something. Sounding beneath it. Or, more accurately, along with it. A hushed, faint sort of singing. Nana had not come back in time for dinner. It was pretty uneventful, since Mrs. Castillo didn't seem to think it was necessary to engage in conversation as lively as the night before, now that our only adult guest was absent. I say silent, but that was only really in terms of conversation. The loud wind sound had progressed into a strong howl, almost like a sharp whistle. And if I let myself, I could imagine the whistling of the wind sounding more like someone singing. I decided not to let it bother me and asked Nana about it later. After dinner... I asked Sophie to show me her favorite movie in the entertainment room. Nothing keeps an eight-year-old up more than her favorite movie being played over and over again. Lanny kept coming in and chastising me for keeping Sophie up, but I just made some excuse that Sophie wanted to hang out with me on our last night here, and that we got Mrs. Castelia's permission to stay up past bedtime anyway. Lanny didn't seem to buy it much, but she didn't argue either. It was two in the morning and we were in our third run of Barbie as Rapunzel when I heard loud voices coming from the entrance hall one of them Nanay's. Sophie was still happily engrossed in the movie, so I said I'd quickly just check out what was happening. I walked in on Nanay and Mrs. Castilia arguing in the foyer. You haven't been honest with me, Nanay said, furious. I asked you again and again if there was anything in your business that could be related to the Batibat and you just hid the fact that you were involved in illegal logging. Mrs. Castilia flared up in response, clearly about to make an angrier retort, when both she and Nanay spotted me watching them from the side. "'Where's Sophie?' Nana asked. I assured them she's fine, awake as ever, in the TV room. But I could barely make out her response because I heard it again. The singing. So loud and sonorous now within the sound of rushing wind. It had a tinge of urgency in its song, like it was singing in expectation of something. I ignored Nana and Mrs. Castelia's confused stares as I followed the source, following as it got louder and louder. Nana caught on quickly and simply followed me without a word. Mrs. Castillo, helpless, just did the same. The singing led us from the living room, past the dining area, through the kitchen, and right to the auxiliary kitchen in the back, where I had just been this afternoon. The wind was so loud here that I could hardly believe that things were perfectly in place, and not flying around. I tuned in on the noise. There. A small purse on the kitchen counter. I pointed to it, said that something was in there. Nani wordlessly walked over to it, and after only a few seconds of rummaging, pulled out a small piece of wood. It looked like a chipped-off piece of tree bark, so small that it could fit in my Nani's palm. My breath hitched as I saw the horrors and patterns of the wood forming what looked like a smiling face. The Batibat's home. Lani looked caught, but steeled herself when Mrs. Castillo confronted her. Lani! What is the meaning of this? You've been with us for years. You love the kids. I know. it's the reason you called her. But why are you surprised? Lani said, her voice raised loud enough for me to hear above the wind. Especially after what you did. <laughs> Whatever Mrs. Castilia said next, I couldn't hear, because the singing had peaked to a crescendo, and the wind was like a surging storm happening invisibly around us. It doesn't matter what happens to me, Lani continued, her anger coloring every word. Because I know that has been enough, you'll be dead the moment you lay down to sleep. And the wind stopped. It was so abrupt. My ears rang from the sudden silence, but I knew it couldn't be a good sign. Nay, I, I started, but she cut me off. It doesn't work that way. Sophie was the next target. She looked at me and back at Lanny. Have you seen Sophie? She was in the TV room. Is she still awake? Lanny's brows knit in confusion. What? Your daughter was keeping her up so late, so I put her to sleep. Why? I bolted for Sophie's room with Nanny close behind. The sound of a slap and the shout of, Hayopka, following behind us. I found Sophie asleep in bed. I checked her pulse and breathing. She was fine. Her eyes opened blearily and she gave me a small smile. Hayate she said. Sorry, I finished the movie without you. I laughed, giving her the tightest hug I could. I seemed stunned by this development, more than anything. The relief likely visible in my face reflected as confusion on hers, until she saw the enting-enting around Sophie's neck. Ever so gently, she lifted it over Sophie's head. From her pocket, she took out a tiny copper piece, another enting-enting, simpler and smaller than mine perfectly sized to fit in the center of Sophie's palm. Nana told her to keep it hidden and safe, a secret shared between us three, and told her to sleep well, that she was safe and always would be. Sophie looked at me for confirmation, and I gave her the kindest, warmest smile that I could. And when we walked out of the room, out in the hallway, Nana gave me a sharp slap on the cheek, the sting shocking me right back into alertness. What did I tell you about this? To never lose it? Or give it away? Do not part with this anting anting, do you understand? I felt shame in that moment, for forgetting to follow Nana's rules when they were the difference between life and death. But it was soothed when Nana told me that it was likely that my anting anting saved Sophie's life, but that I should never do it again, even if it worked out this time. Some risks, she said, just aren't worth taking. I didn't have a chance to say goodbye to Sophie or the boys. Nana told me to get into the car that very night, bringing our bags with us, and I watched as Mrs. Castillo screamed at her from the front porch. I learned later Nana stopped her from chasing Lani down when she ran out of the house, telling her that nothing Lani did could have tempered the Batibat's wrath, and her own pain only made it more vengeful. She wasn't, after all, the one who destroyed the spirit's home. Joshua came running with something gripped tight in his hand, which, even from afar, I realized were the talismans we'd so painstakingly set up around the house. He was screaming curses at my Nana, calling her a charlatan, and in the face of all that, Nana looked calm. She simply took out the piece of wood that was the angry batibat's home and held it out. When Joshua made to reach for it, it suddenly caught fire and burned to ash right in front of them. The batibat scream echoed in my ears as both Castillo saw the spirit's wrathful grimace form in the smoke before dissipating. I wondered if Sophie saw it all or if she was still sleeping soundly, unaware and at peace. I never saw her again after that. On our drive to the airport, we saw a familiar figure, walking along the side of the lonely road. Nana didn't stop the car, but I could see Lani wave in the rear view when he passed her by. We slept in the airport until our flight. Nanai hugged me and apologized for slapping me, saying she needed me to understand how important it was that I never lose the anting-anting that had been made just for me. To her credit, she never struck me again after that. I remember reading about Joshua Castillo's death in the papers not long after. An aneurysm that took him in sleep, following the tragic loss of his father when he was meant to inherit the company. They made no mention of Inigo or Sofia Castillo in order to preserve their privacy, I guessed. It took me a long time to realize why the company sounded so familiar. Maybe because when you asked about environmental and indigenous activists, Being murdered in and around mining and logging operations, you'd have to go down a whole list. When Anna heard the news, she shook her head, as if in disappointment. He should have left those talismans be. After all, there was, she said,
0: more than one batibat. You're listening to High Night. by Motsi Dapul.